yeah, so. So just a brief comment this morning uh, with respect to this cultivation of really what is called divine pride, pure vision, or more simply put, that simple indivisibility of one's own awareness with the mind of the Guru, the Buddha. Um, it's cultivating a habit. That's what it really is. It is something Jama in called in Tibetan Jama, as we're imagining this, we're contriving something, we're fabricating something. There's no question about it. Uh, but we're we're substituting one old contrivance with a better contrivance, one old bad habit with a new not so bad habit, something like that. And that is, imagine for example that when you were a child, uh, you know, hypothetically entirely, uh, you're always told. You're just, you're a loser, you're a loser, you're a loser, you're a total loser, such a big disappointment. You know, you have that hammered into you. So you really, and you get it from other sides as well. Loser, loser, stupid, stupid. Until you kind of really, you kind of absorb that. And then whatever you do, I think, whatever you do, you go to school, you have relationships, you go to work and so forth, that's going to be your platform. If you accepted what these authorities said, the people around you said, that'll be your platform. So whatever you're doing, you'll bring that, in other words, your activities will be imbued with, even if you're not thinking, I'm a loser, I'm a loser, you're just, I'm just trying to do my best, I'm just trying, I'm trying. But underneath that, imbued with, I'm a loser, I'm a loser, right? So chronic trait, low self-esteem. And contrary, of course, if you're told by some Oh, some parents who utterly, what's, what's the term, the verb, uh, just fawn on you, fawn on you. Just, you're this, just the, the most cutest, smartest, greatest little child that ever lived, and you just told this, you're just the super duper child, you're just, you know, and you just kind of blah, 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 blah. You know, little Lord or little Miss Fontleroy, you know, you're just the greatest, then you would carry that with you. In other words, high self-esteem, low self-esteem, either one is diluted. One just feels a little bit better, you know. Uh, but then you'd carry that with you. Wherever you'd go, you'd feel this as well. Oh, but you're, you're not little Miss Fontleroy. I am, you know. <laughs> and so you just carry that around you, the sense of entitlement, the sense of superiority, the sense of privilege, the sense of I'm on someone special. Have you recognized that yet? You know, and that would be imbued. That would be the underlying current for everything you're doing, right? And they're both delusional, and we tend to reify them both. So now, what are we doing? In this dissolution, this dissolving into emptiness, that which we have constructed, whether it's high self-esteem, low self-esteem, or just whatever it is we've latched onto for our ordinary sense of identity as being just basically a sentient being seeing the constructed nature of that, that it has no existence apart from the conceptual designation, we unconceptually designate it, thereby we melt it right into emptiness, into that emptiness is non-dual from pristine awareness. And then we imagine something. So we go from contrivance to non-contrivance, or a best facsimile, to, to contrivance. Juma to chume to juma. And here is now imagining one's own mind stream indivisible from that of the Buddha. Well, the easy thing to do there would be to carry the same old problem over from the old context to the new context. And the problem is reification. Taking seriously, grasping onto the real, I really am a loser, I really am better than everybody else. 
grasping onto reifying, dissolving both of those kind of really cool sentient being and really lousy sentient being to super duper I am Buddha and then reifying that. Then you turn the medicine into poison. You turn the medicine of the Vajrayana taking the fruition in the, as a path and you turn that into just more delusion. But now it's divine delusion. <laughs> Except for that is definitely an oxymoron. And so there we see this is slender. This is a swift path. We, we remember we had that business. Three, seven, eleven, countless eons versus one lifetime. Something enormously dramatic has to be taking place. If we're to take that at all seriously, and I do, but if we're going to be collapsing something that seems like just inconceivable amount of time to a very conceivable amount of time, what did you say, maximum 16 lifetimes or whatever, or even in one, one lifetime, two lifetimes, or achieving enlightenment in the bardo, and so on, if that's going to take place, if we're going to take that seriously, then this has to be something more than a gimmick. A gimmick just means to cut us a trick, just kind of some cute little technique. It's got to be something really deep. And that means it's going to be very subtle. And I think fundamentally what it is, is rather than practicing from the from platform that is deluded, we're practicing, we're seeking to, plat, to practice from a platform that we at least imagine not being deluded. And that is the notion of I am a sentient being, really. And now let's get to work and practice Dharma. Okay. It's like practicing Dharma in the midst of a non-lucid dream and practicing shamatha and this and the six perfections and lojom and so forth and transforming and practicing ethics and practicing samadhi and so forth but all within the context of being asleep. And not only asleep and ignorant because ignorant you don't know it's a dream and delusional because you're taking it to be something it's, it's not and that is everything around you and yourself. You're taking that which is not you as being you and you're grasping onto this kind of reified notion, this is all real. And in the midst of that, you can practice what is called zachiki dewa, tainted virtue. And everything you do within that, let's say, non-lucid dream, everything you do, I mean, you could be sacrificing your life, giving away all your wealth, teaching thousands of people dharma, and so forth. And you can do a lot of virtue. And it'll all be tainted virtue. That's what it's called. Zachit means tainted or contaminated. Contaminated virtue. Why? Because it's all rooted in delusion. It's all rooted in, this is who I am, you know, and this is all real. And so this is why in Dzogchen, especially Dzogchen Mahamudra, it's recognizing, it never, there's never any deprecation of tainted virtue or stage of generation, stage of completion, the six paramitas, the shravakayana, the mahayana. In fact, Gyatrodhambuchi, when, when he was teaching this, he said, okay, I'm going to tell you one of the prerequisites, because he was teaching all these practices of, stage, of spacious path to freedom, natural liberation. He was teaching these without having people necessarily take empowerment or without having them having taken all of the, done all the prelim, preliminary practices, of sets of 100,000. He didn't even demand that they be Buddhist. He simply said, if you have faith and you'd really like to practice, you're welcome. But he did say this. If you want to attend these teachings, if you want to be a qualified student for these teachings, then you must never, ever deprecate or look down upon Sravagayana. So-called Theravada and so forth, Mahayana, or look down upon any religious tradition whatsoever. You may never do that. If you are, then you're disqualified. Then there's the door. You know? 
So he considered that more important than reciting this or that a hundred thousand times, which can be very meaningful. I want to come, always come, I want to come back to that. It can be very meaningful. It's just that I think sometimes it's not. So there it is. In this practice, we're seeking to totally dis- dissolve not only the reified notion of I am this, I am really cool, I'm really terrible, I am a sentient being, re- dissolving all of that. We're seeking not only to dissolve all of that, but to arise from the domain of emptiness and pristine awareness in this, in this form and with the identity of a Buddha, such as Padmasambhava, but not reifying. In other words, really kind of taking on the form of a Nimanakaya, which is called an emanation body, and that is we're arising then. When you dissolve the substantial concrete, I am this, I am that, when you arise, and we're going, we're going there very quickly in the Avalokiteshvara sadhana. You're rising as really in the form of like a holographic image. It's a really strong parallel. A holographic image that is there, it moves, it interacts, it has causal efficacy. Because they do, don't they? A holographic image does have causal efficacy. You can photograph it. It does things. And is it there from its own side? Absolutely not. And yet it does have causal efficacy. You rise in that fashion like a rainbow, like a holographic image, like a reflection in a mirror, all of those having causal efficacy, none of those really there. And that goes for your appearance, but also your sense of identity. You hold it with the lightness of a feather. I am Padmasambhava. My mind is the mind of Padmasambhava. You hold it with the lightness of a feather. And you'll hold that. You'll hold that as something contrived. Juma, contrived, fabricated, artificial. It is. Because you're imagining it, right? That's what you're doing. You're imagining it. You imagine it until you don't need to imagine it any longer. Until the reality bursts through the imagination. And then like, like a sprout coming from a, from a seed, the husk, the dead husk of the fabricated part goes, it just falls into the soil. And then pristine awareness arises, and that's not fabricated. That's the first thing you'll ever experience that's not fabricated. Let's practice. Namo Namadeshe Dupe Ku Kunjo Sumgi Ranjin La Datan Dotu Senjin Chanju Badu Kapsu Chi Namo. In the Lama, who is the embodiment of the Sugatas, of the nature of the three jewels, I, together with the beings of the six realms, take refuge until our enlightenment. Semge doa kundun do lama sange dupneni Kangla kandu tinle ki doa doa lamchao 
For the sake of all beings, I generate the spirit of awakening and cultivate the realization of the Lama as Buddha. By means of enlightened activity, I shall train each being according to their needs, and I vow to liberate the world. West frontier of Odiana, in the heart of a lotus, sits the one renowned as Padmasambhava, who achieved the wondrous supreme city, and is surrounded by a host of many dakinis. Following in your footsteps, I devote myself to practice. Please come forth and bestow your blessings. Guru Pema City Hum. Receive the four empowerments. Invite the Guru Padmasambhava to the crown of your head. Imagine then the indivisibility, actually the primordial indivisibility of the Buddha's body, speech, and mind, the three vajras of vajra speech, of rajva body, vajra mind, with your own body, speech, and mind, and rest in that sense of that indivisibility. wish to switch your postures, please do so now.
for a little while emphasize primarily the qualities of ease, relaxation, and of stillness. You may very well find that the method of mindfulness of breathing is especially effective in calming the energies within the body, soothing the turbulence of the conceptual mind, so that you can rest with greater ease in the stillness of your own awareness.
Then let your eyes be at least partially open, the eyes soft, unfocused, the gaze resting vacantly in the space in front of you. Direct the light of your awareness, of course, to the space of the mind and to whatever arises within it. And you'll find insofar as you identify with your attention, this mental attention discussed yesterday, it will take some effort to remain still in the midst of the movements of the mind. So you're cultivating stability. This is worth doing. This is meaningful. But the more you can release grasping, release identification with attention itself, and go into free go into free fall, into this simple awareness of the present moment that is by nature unmoving. Insofar as you can rest there, it takes no effort because it doesn't move anyway. The mind moves, we move because of grasping. So both are worth doing. Seek to stabilize your attention in stillness as you attend to the space of the mind and its contents. But also seek to release all grasping so that you can rest in the natural stillness of awareness itself. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
I mentioned at some length a couple of days ago the three different modes of knowledge according to Buddhist epistemology. Uh, but the outermost one, the most, frankly, the most superficial one, the lightest weight one, the one that is the least reliable, being knowledge based on authority. But of course, most of what we know is exactly that. Most of it is true. And in Buddhism, if one really studies well, practices a lot, studies the, the life stories, the accomplishments of the great beings of the past, studies what, discovers, what discoveries they've made, uh, then, as frankly, I think it's a very strong parallel with science, then you can say, well, now I know this is true, based upon the authority of such great individuals as Buddha, Nagarjuna, Tsongkhapa, Padmasambhava, Milarepa, and so on. So the point, but now let's just, let's just stick with, right, with Buddhism now, because this is now Buddhist epistemology. Prior to knowledge based on authority is simply belief, you know, a sense of trust or belief. That's not knowledge, yeah, that's just belief. But it's better to have beliefs, in fact, it's much better to have beliefs that are in accordance with reality than beliefs that are contrary to reality. That will serve us very well. This is why I so frequently critique materialism, because it's a whole set of beliefs, but they're violently in contradiction to reality. So they're false, but they're so catastrophically harmful. I mean, Marx is having these ideas. Oh, let's abolish religion, everything is just matter. How many millions of people died because of his ideas? When his ideas were fused with the state, the power of the state, the tyranny, of one Marxist regime after another. How many people have died because of one guy's ideas? Those are false beliefs. They're not, they're not lightweight. They are more poisonous than strychnine. So, but coming back to Buddhism, so it's better to have a, a, a valid belief, even though it's not even knowledge, than an invalid belief. And then there, but then if we really investigates, investigates, really probes into it, like studying science, then a scientist can say, we know this, we know that. Because you've really studied Science, you've studied the great ones, you've studied physics, chemistry, and so if you've really studied it, you understand these many, many variations of the scientific method, you understand how the whole peer-reviewed process takes place, you understand, then you can say, okay, we know. An outsider who's done none of that, just, I just believe in science, that's cool. And there's, there's a lot of truth in that, so there we are. But then, coming back to Buddhism, well then, what's, what's the point there? Okay, now, okay, now you've studied well, you've become a Kembo, a Geshe, you're a scholar, and you can say quite accurately, yes, I know, I know the truths of reincarnation, karma, nirvana, the Four Noble Truths, very good. It, how much has that purified your mind? And you say, well, maybe somewhat, but that's not enough. One has to probe more deeply. There's a fundamental difference between science and scientific inquiry and contemplative inquiry. It's enough, it's frankly enough, for all of us really, to simply rely upon knowledge based on authority for most, if not all, of science. It's enough. We can still use our cell phones and get in airplanes and make use of technology and have this very well-informed vision of the physical world. That's enough. We don't really, there's no value in us going through all the sciences and replicating all the experiments done over this. I mean, there's no time, of course, but there's no value in it either. Who cares? Science gets to this very, very narrow edge, and this is where, in this extremely tiny microcosm of your specialized field within a specialized field, you may add another grain of sand to the, to the ocean of, you know, or the great sands, whatever, 
of scientific knowledge. But that's going to be your area right there that you really know, right? And that's good enough. But it's not good enough in Buddhism. It's not good enough for contemplative inquiry. It's not good enough to say, well, my teacher is the Dalai Lama, therefore I'm doing just great. Because he knows all this stuff, and he's my guru, so therefore you may stop prostrating now, you know, because he's my teacher. You know. Well, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. We move from knowledge based on authority, which is not cheap. It's much more expensive. It takes much more investment than simply belief. But then, in contemplative inquiry, we actually have to know these things for ourselves, not simply based upon somebody's authority. If this is to bring about the effect for which the Dharma is designed, to purify the mind, to enlighten the mind, to overcome delusion, then we have to do it ourselves. We can't just piggyback on somebody else. right? The contact high by hanging out with enlightened yogis. We have to go in there and really investigate, really investigate, use, pour every ounce of our intelligence into the Dharma to test it. As if we're going to mortgage our house and everything and our children or whatever to buy a big chunk of gold. If you're going to, if you're going to bet everything on a chunk of gold, you better be sure that's gold. And that's what we're doing. I mean, when taking refuge, it's kind of like, all right, as we say, I'm giving away my body, my wealth, my virtues of all the times, you know. This is renunciation. I'm giving up all attachment, which means I'm totally investing in the Dharma. Well, do that if and only if it's solid gold. If it's fool's gold, oh, you're going to be the biggest loser on the planet. Right? If you give that kind of investment, to something that turns out to be fundamentally flawed or delusional or seriously defective, you're really screwed. Right? And that's happened many, many, many times. People investing themselves in an ideology, following some charismatic leaders, some cult, some movement, and getting totally shafted. That many, many times, including in the context of religion, of course. So that's where this investigation, that's where the Buddha said, test it as if you were testing gold. You're about to give everything you own for the gold. It better be solid gold. And don't accept it until you know. So it's good to know by inference, by analysis, by investigation, by reasoning, full, you know, full throttle intelligence to test for yourself, is this true or not? And if you find that you gain ascertainment, then that knowledge through inference, oh, that's, much worth, that's worth much more, much more transformative. That's more solid and reliable than simply knowledge based on authority, let alone belief. Right, But it's not enough. It's purifying. It's definitely bringing about some deep transformation now. If you can realize emptiness by way of inference, conceptually, that is not trivial. That's just not just an intellectual trip. That can be very powerful. right? But it's not enough. So we see there's a very clear hierarchy here. Inference, based on reasoning, called cogent inference. That's more powerful than yijijepa. Inference based on authority. Right. But more powerful than, than that, of course, more powerful than cogent inference, the knowledge based on cogent inference, is you see it for yourself, face on, got it, nailed it, know it. It's your immediate experience. That's realization. That's the highest. And that's what purifies. And everything else is a drum roll, a preparation for that. That's what liberates. And the thing about it is, every single person has to do it, him or herself. It's not enough to say, my best buddy, or my wife, or my guru, or my disciple, or any, that's just not, doesn't cut it. It has to be oneself. 
and this came out in a conversation just recently, there's realization, topa, topa, that means you've nailed it. You realize by direct perception, immediate experience. It's like putting chocolate in your mouth and you know the taste of chocolate. That's much more than inference, much more than knowing you know, other people's reports on chocolate and believing chocolate. This is, oh God, that's chocolate. I got the taste of it, you know, like that. The taste of rikpa, the taste of emptiness. The taste of shamatha, taste of bodhicitta. So there's topa, which is realization, but there's something even beyond that. I like the image of topa being like taking a nail and just taking a great big hammer and going, pow! And the nail goes right down flush to the top of the wood. You nailed it. They even use that term. Three, na- three, na- what? three striking of the nail, right? What's, karas? What's it called in English? The karas agarabdorje. Striking of the... Does anybody know it? It's, it's three points that strike the nail, something like that. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But the point, that metaphor is used. But like the topa is like, you nailed it. Right? Is there anything beyond that? The answer is, yeah. Take a little pin, put it on top of the nail head, and then bang it again. It's called countersinking in the nail. Then the top of the nail goes down beneath the surface of the wood, and you're not getting that nail out unless you just rip the wood apart. Right? That's called deng topa, acquiring confidence. You acquire confidence, man. You are Mount Meru. You can realize something and it may fade. It happens. But if you get Deng Topa, if you countersink the nail, that's in there. That's in there. That's what we're here for. And each person has to do it himself. No piggyback. Oh, yeah. Enjoy your day. See you later.